guiding principles of our national life. Welcome to Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. We have the privilege today to be joined by Ms. Shanti Shamdasani. Ms. Shanti, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sean. Ms. Shanti is a very interesting individual with an impressive professional career in the private sector, but now has made the decision to go towards another direction and is running for a seat in the 2019-2024 Indonesian Parliament. She is representing Jakarta from the National Democratic Party, or NASDEM as it's called. Although it's not the largest party, it is a prominent member of the Widodo government coalition and is a strong supporter of the president. She has almost 20 years of private sector experience in healthcare, biotech, and logistics in Southeast Asia, and has been involved in policy, industry, and public affairs for several multinational companies such as Pfizer, Johnson Johnson, and DHL. She has also worked with the Office of the President during the SBY administration, focusing on trade negotiations with China, India, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, Ms. Shanti, uh, bureaucrats and business executives are like night and day. The working culture and challenges are greatly different. Why did you make the decision to run for public office? And are you prepared to go from a corporate culture to a massive bureaucracy? It's a valid question. Since I got into politics, uh, or, or since I run for campaign, I wouldn't say I'm in politics now. I made a very careful decision. I spent 20 years in corporate multinationals, mainly US companies. And of course, there is a certain ethics there's FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I'm a big believer of that. Uh, I've always practiced, uh, you know, integrity and uh, uh, honesty in all my dealings. Um, I think I'm fortunate enough to have good reputation in all the places I've worked with. I also established my own company actually in 2007. And the reason why I mentioned this is the company I established is called ASEAN International Advocacy. And at some points, some of these multinational companies also hire the services of ASEAN International Advocacy. So I've had clients who are uh, American uh, corporations, mainly. Uh, some of them are Europeans, uh, but uh, majority are, are Americans. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to have this good reputation as a uh, you know, successful, upcoming, energetic uh, woman in the corporate world. And suddenly, bam, she moved to politics, right? And everybody's like, what happened? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, and nobody thought that was me. Like, you know, we, they didn't see that as my personality because, uh, you know, we all know, uh, you know, bureaucracy is bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, professionalism, which we uh, often see in a, in a multinational setting, I won't be getting that in a bureaucratic setting. The game is totally different. And uh, the interesting part is uh, I've lived and worked in Singapore, China, Japan, India, and, uh, and you know, other parts of Southeast Asia. So I'm, I'm a very agile, very open person in the sense that I can live and work anywhere and, and I'm, I'm okay. So one of the reasons I do decide to get into politics is I wanted to learn. See, being a public affairs person or a policy or, you know, I'm, I'm doing my PhD now in law. Uh, I'm actually a trade lawyer and I do a lot of trade negotiations. But being a, a lawyer, I need to understand the 360 degrees of the situation of the environment. 
we at the multinational we only understand that the regulation says abc and in order to change regulation you have to basically uh, put up an advocacy uh, strategic program but very few people actually understand why a regulation is made who triggers those what was the agenda behind it and how you can actually be a part of that bigger picture and not just play on the tip of the iceberg so i wanted to add that value to me because today if you ask around you know who is who's the public affairs or corporate affairs or you know uh, the one most lawyer who understand legal system of a country i could confidently say I'm one of them because I've worked with the president's office, mm -hmm. I've worked with multinational companies, I'm chairwoman in various other associations, not just locally, actually mainly regionally because, you know, the East Asia Business Council, uh, you know, been sitting in Cardin for many, many years. And uh, Cardin is the Indonesian Chamber of yeah, Commerce. Yeah, that's the Indonesian Chamber. And I'm the, also the chairwoman for ASEAN India Business Council, you know, the president for ASEAN International Advocacy. So not just in terms of one country, how got policies are formed, you know, but the regional. Oftentimes, if a regulation comes up and people say, okay, you know, the country needs this, so the government make this regulation. That's not necessarily. Sometimes it is triggered from the regional environment, right? And sometimes it is triggered from global. I mean, look at the Terrorist Act, mm -hmm. the regulation. It didn't come out just because Indonesia or, or Malaysia or Singapore needed it. It came out because, you know, the world was being threatened with, you know, all this terrorist attack. And then finally the government comes together and then says, we need this for us, right? So that's, that's one example. So the reason why I move is because I wanted to learn and, uh, you know, for me, this is, so I gave myself a period of eight months because the campaign uh, time is around eight months. So this is my learning period to really understand, uh, you know, where I can make a difference, what value I can bring, uh, not just to the country, uh, but to the community and to the society. And um, I'm, I'm always an open-minded person. I mean, from healthcare, I moved to logistics. And then from, from logistics, uh, you know, I move into security and defense and maritime. And I have few clients who are in maritime now as well. So I think life is about learning and you should not, if you have an opportunity, you should not close that door. That's basically the main answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Why the sudden move? Sangat mengecewakan. Sangat mengecewakan dan ini perlu saya ingatkan kepada seluruh jabat agar tidak melakukan itu lagi. Berkali-kali saya sampaikan memperbaiki sistem, memperbaiki sistem. Ini juga terkait dengan uh, integritas, moralitas dari pejabat-pejabat kita. It's very disappointing and I need to remind officials not to do that anymore. We are trying to improve the system and this involves good integrity and morality from all our government officials. That was President Widodo commenting on the need to reduce corruption in government. Can you talk a bit about your experience on the campaign trail? I've heard that things haven't been going so smoothly for you. I do understand in, you know, uh, maintaining high integrity would be a challenge in this bureaucratic setting, but so far I've, I've done pretty well in the sense that I've stopped campaigning because people are asking for money and I said I'm not paying any money. The campaign just began in mid-September 
around yeah. mid-September? Yeah, around mid-September. And you started campaigning, but now you've stopped? Yeah, Can I, you explain why, why would you stop campaigning when the, the election's coming in April? I know. So it's, it's anti, anti-theoretic, right? But see, I, I did campaign earlier, and I went down to 10 points or 15 locations, basically. And every time I do my campaigning, I said, I've come to offer you a free education. And, and what I'm offering them is to improve the future of their children and even themselves and to actually get into a trade, to promote trade while they are sitting just at home so they can earn money. They can cook and sell online. So everything I'm bringing, I'm bringing them the knowledge of online, online marketing, online trade, online customs, online thing, because not a lot of people know. Even big businesses sometimes are confused. Yeah what the customs procedures are and all that. I'm opening all this to them. I'm bringing knowledge. So before I start my campaign and I have these hundreds of people sitting, waiting to listen to what I promised them, I told them, I said, look, you know, time is valuable for all of us. And, uh, you know, I have, I don't bring money. I don't bring some barco. I'm not going to give donation. I have nothing else to give you but an opportunity for you to get knowledge and that knowledge you can use to earn money. If any one of you think you are wasting your time listening to me because I don't bring money, you're free to stand up and leave this thing. And if I have to talk to empty benches, I would be more than honored to talk to empty benches because at least I know I'm clean. Nobody stand up, everybody sat there and was like, we want to listen to you. And so I explained to them what my program was. And I explained to my campaign manager, I said, the area that have asked for either donation or money or whatever, I will not go to that area. And I will not give the money to that area. You're representing Jakarta? South and, sorry, South and Central Jakarta. South and Central Jakarta. Yeah. And when you go to some venues, uh, you want to hold some venues for the campaign, you're saying that it's not easily arranged without making donations or yeah. or, or such things. And, yeah. and you're saying I'm not giving that you're not going to give into that system or that. So they said, fine, if you don't want to, we have another political party. Or they would give me an example. Oh, there's another uh, this political party and we will just listen to them. I said, that's fine. I have no issues. I stopped two weeks ago. Okay. Now my, my team is focused on just trying to find areas where they would listen to me without money. So if you ever see me campaigning again, that means these are the yeah. areas where they are clean. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will make this public in media, like wherever you see me talking, you can bet that these are- That there was no donations, they, they, there was and, no and payment. The, and the people there are genuine and clean and good. Just to clarify, so you're saying that the is it the local level, the local RTEW? It varies. I so I told my campaign manager when he came back to me, like we meet every two three days for a report, right? Because this is a huge thing. Uh, you know, it's actually running for politics and campaigning is more tiring than you know staying in a corporate world because I have meetings until one in the morning. But I told them, he used to come back and said, we can't go down to this area because they've asked for ambulance for the masjid. And I said, stop. I don't want to know the details. You just tell me this is not the area we are not going down. And I will understand why. Uh, you know, Once I know, even if you pay or anything, you're fired. So I have friends who comes to me and said, you know, why are you being so stupid? 
I mean, you have such a good reputation. Everybody knows you. You have high connections with high people. All you have to do is pick up the phone and people will send you 20,000, will send you 50,000. Some will even send you like 700,000. I mean, I've even had an offer of someone wanting to give me 700,000 and I said, no. I am doing this campaign and I know this sounds stupid or naive, but I am not naive. I really want to use this momentum in my life to see how much, a, how far can a clean person go? Yeah, how far can you go? I want to test myself. This is my test. This is the trust test of honesty. This is a test for integrity. So this is the standard process of if, if a candidate wants to speak, they have to make donations. I was like told. That. Now, again, I'm new in this game, right? I don't know how this game is being played and all that thing. I'm new in this game. And I was told, oh, you are very naive. You know, this is how it is. If you don't play the game, you don't be in the race. And I said, you're wrong. I can be in the race and I can not play the game. And we will, the world will see what the result is. Because my game would be a game of integrity. Are there other ways to connect with the people through social media? Can you, of course. Can so you bypass these other Social media is what I'm playing a lot. So you see me a lot on my Facebook, on my Instagram. What, what, is, what is happening in the world today? Is that we are heading to an infinity war? Nasdem is a relatively new party established in 2011. Uh, it was established by the party's chairman, uh, Surya Palo, who is a well-known media mogul and once a prominent member of the Golkar party. Uh, Nasdem currently holds about 6.7 seats in the House, which is around, I think, 36 seats. Uh, what drew you to the National Democrat Party and what policy or agenda can you bring to the table? One thing that drew me to, the, to Nasdem, um, I mean, I know Surya Palo for the last 10 years, and I've been studying the party for the last three years. Because, you know, again, as a lawyer, you need to understand the political background and you need to understand who's driving what law. Because different political party mm -hmm. actually Absolutely. is the bearer of different regulations and all that. So I've been observing those. I find there's one thing, uh, one similarity between Nasdem and me. Actually, quite a few, but one which actually protrudes out quite, quite a lot, which is the anti-corruption. When I thought, okay, you know, this, this party is anti-corruption, anti-bribery and all that thing, they seem to be clean. Although people tell me again that, you know, I'm naive and, you know, there's no political party which is clean. But from my view, from my eyes, where I'm standing from, I've not found anything. My deal with Nasdem as well is I'm not going to spend money because I, I hear horrible stories about people getting into politics and they sell their assets and mm -hmm. they go greedy and they go crazy and they said we want votes, votes, votes. So I'm not going to spend a penny. I'm going to bring my knowledge and if the party values that, that's fine. If not, you know, I can always go back to what I'm doing. So the deal was I'm not going to pay. And, and the party values that? The party values that. So far? Until today, they've been very supportive of everything that I've tried to do. Noting your background and experiences, it appears that there are many issues that you would be able to raise and address in Parliament if you were elected, uh, whether it's on trade, energy, or tax. Uh, you have expertise uh, in all of these fields. 
Um, so let's address some of these and maybe talk a little bit about the so-called digital economy. Mm-hmm. You have been outspoken about the need to integrate products of small and medium enterprises or SMEs into the e-commerce sector in Indonesia. The rise of e-commerce has challenged conventional stores and retailers, and this has been particularly impactful for local SMEs. Mm-hmm. In response to this, the Minister of Small and Medium Enterprises announced last year that they have been developing incentives to help SMEs participate in the digital economy. Uh, the incentives include providing digital and technology training to SME players and establishing various cross-marketplace uh, cooperation. President Widodo has also issued a decree covering uh, e-commerce roadmap, uh, which provides loans to SMEs who are willing to become e-commerce merchants. What do you think is lacking from these existing initiatives by the Widodo government and what policies are needed uh, to bring more SMEs into the e-commerce? Let me just go one by one. Expertise. This is actually, I don't know how to put this without really sounding like I'm bragging about myself, but okay, so I've been told that I have this expertise and experience which could really be beneficial for the Indonesian government. But what I'm learning with the reality that I am in today after entering into politics, people don't look at your expertise. People don't look at your experience. People look at what you bring on the table. So far that is visible to me. Is you know, how much money can you put on the table again, you know? Anybody can get elected. Anybody can be a member of parliament. And that's the reason why members of parliament have such a bad reputation, because good people are really few. The bad people will take all the bag of money and would just run for it. I'm also in the group of the Jokowi, the uh, team of experts of Jokowi. And that's where I feel I'm most valued. He listens to me. As a matter of fact, today, 2 o'clock, I'm going to have another meeting on Indonesia's political, some of the economic agenda. Is this, sorry, is this for the re-election campaign or is this part of the administration? This is part of the administration, okay. yeah. I did mention to you I have my own companies and some of the, my clients are actually heads of states. So Duterte was my client. and, and uh, The president of Philippines. President of Philippines. Uh, Chan Ocha was my client, the Thai prime minister. So Jokowi found out about this and he says, you know, she's Indonesian and she's consulting foreign heads of states. What about me? Like, you know, call her back. Like, you know, what is she doing? Like, so now I'm, I'm in his team. But I think that's where I feel I'm most valued because it's more professional and all that. Kami tidak mungkin menghentikan e-commerce. Itu satu keniscayaan. Tetapi bagaimana sekarang kita mengatur, menertibkan, tapi jangan membunuh. Dan juga harus ada pola persaingan yang sehat antara online dengan offline. We are not trying to stop e-commerce. What we are doing is trying to find a way to regulate it, but not kill it. We also have to ensure that there is healthy competition between online and offline retailers. That was Trade Minister Lukita. Your other question was about e-commerce and what the government agenda should be. And you know, I've, yes, I've been outspoken about uh, e-commerce only for one fact, because the future is digital trade. E-commerce is, is digital trade. 
I want to put that straight first because, you know, you see shops are being closed down, malls are empty and, you know, soon everything would be kind of like moving into this digital space. If I want to bring benefit or value to people's life, I need to teach them how to do this, how to play this game so that they at least can earn a decent income. Now, when you talk about income, of course, you talk about taxation, right? Because if we live in a in a country, you have the governments and you need to have this proper system of taxation. And for years and years, online trade, I'll give you a data, 2016, average, I don't remember for each of the 10 countries, but average uh, e-commerce growth trade ranges between 15 to 21% average. Oh. You will be surprised to know, 2017, Indonesia's growth was 42.2%. So e-commerce growth is still in its infancy, and it seems that we will see growth in that sector continue and expand. And that's why you have these international players uh, looking at Indonesia. It is mind-blowing, and I think Amazon should get into this, and we'll get that. You have another interesting mm. question, which I thought of, you know, I work quite a bit on Obor project. Obor is one belt, one road. I, I work the Chinese. with the Chinese, and I work in the border of Myanmar, uh, Cambodia, Laos, and into Thailand. So I was three months at that border, just trying to understand the logistic pathways uh, and how to improve trade. So basically, Alibaba is dominating the online sphere. I'm not against any company dominating anything, but I don't believe in monopoly. A world should not be, or any sector or any industry should not be so monopolized. You need a competition, healthy competition. You need a healthy competition. You need to balance it out. Digitalization of 4.0 is something that is a challenge for Indonesia. Digital, 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 digital. What will happen, do you think, when Amazon enters the Indonesian market from, say, the government perspective and also to the, to the local players? Currently, um, some of the local marketplaces such as Tokopedia, Bukalapak, or, and uh, Blibli have been able to compete against multiple international players such as Shopee, JD, and Lazada, for example. But what about Amazon? When they, when they eventually come to Indonesia, I know they're investing in AWS. Eventually, they'll want to enter the e-commerce market. So this is, this is a trade secret. Uh, so I'll not get into details, but there is a strategic way to actually, you don't, in a nutshell, you don't have to compete in the same sphere as Bukalapak, as Wiki, as Tokopedia, Blibli, Shopee, Alibaba. The e-commerce sphere is so huge that you can continue competing on this for the next hundred years and you still will have a good market for it. And, and uh, again, if Amazon is willing, I'll be more than happy to talk to them and share with them in terms of how they can get into market. Now, what happens when Amazon get into market? I think uh, the competition will get better, not tougher, right? Better in the sense it's better for the seller. What is happening today is the sellers, like I, I, I do uh, talk to a lot of SMEs. 
and they said, you know, we make this for like, you know, uh, 10,000 rupiah, like, you know, the, the floor mat, right? 10,000 rupiah is our cost. And uh, we sell it online. We would like to sell it online for 20,000. And I said, you're taking 100% profit. I said, yeah, because I have to buy additional sewing machine. It requires a special needle and all that sewing machine. And because it's a machine, so I need a space. And that for that space to operate, I need electricity. You know, and then I need to pay a salary to the people that work there. So adding up to all these things, my actual cost is around uh, 14200 and then when I, the reason why we put uh, 20,000 is because then the distribution, the logistics, sending and everything, they put it on us. So this thing, so I'm like, okay. But they're complaining now because then all these large platforms would say, okay, I'll buy a thousand pieces from you and you sell it to me in 17,000. And that's still fair enough according to them. But now we have to go down up to uh, 15,000 or even sometimes 14,500. My cost is 14,200. I'm only getting profit 300 rupiah per piece. I'm not making money. Might as well I close and just be a Gojek driver or, yeah. you know, Grab driver or whatever, you know. And that's the reason why Indonesian industry, manufacturing industry is not growing because people just find it very hard to compete with the price. And all these people who wants to be an entrepreneur, they cannot compete, they can't do a price compete. And hence they have to close down and then they have to look for a job. It's, it's actually a process for the SMEs as well, uh, you know, to learn how to get into the sphere. Now, they all know that e-commerce is the way to go in the future, but it should not be monopolized. So when Amazon gets in, I can, you know, I can almost guarantee that the market will find a fair balance. Because at the end of the day, why do people are in business? Because they make profit. Once you take away the profit from them, then they have no reason to make business. The reason why China made goods can be so cheap is because they don't pay salaries. You know, they just give minimum amount of food and uh, tell them you can sleep here and you get free food and you work, you know, 12 hours a day or whatever, 18 hours a day. You know? And then that's the reason why they can sell. But even China is moving towards that sphere. Now China products, they're now looking into quality. Yeah, yeah, and, and pricing going up at some... Right, right. And in Vietnam, pricing are also going up. So this is, again, I think e-commerce, SME and taxation is one parcel, it's one piece. Potensi digital ekonomi kita ini besar sekali. Oleh sebab itu, ini adalah sebuah peluang. Ada opportunity di sini yang harus diisi segera. Gak apa-apa, gabungan dengan mereka datang dan gabung-gabung berusaha gak apa-apa. Indonesia's digital economy is huge. And as a result, this is an opportunity that has to be quickly acted upon. It's fine if we partner with players from outside of Indonesia. That was President Widodo commenting on the state of Indonesia's digital economy earlier this year. Just on the point of taxation, I mean, you've been outspoken, I think, on tax policy, I think, especially when it comes to, say, SME and particularly e-commerce. Um, what do you think is the best uh, tax framework for a win-win 
solution for e-commerce in Indonesia for especially some of the small players? How do you, how does the government get the revenue that they're desperately in need, uh, but also let uh, e-commerce grow in Indonesia? Okay, so let's divide e-commerce into two things. The domestic platform and the international platform. International platforms are when you buy from Amazon. <clears throat> uh, I think Alibaba has already registered uh, domestically. But all these international platforms, right? So if they are, what does our tax system say? What does our tax regulation say? You have to understand the current tax regulation in order to draft the future tax regulation. The current tax regulation say, if you are registered here, <clears throat> if your business permit or license is registered here, you are bound to pay tax. You're bound to submit a tax report every year and pay your whatever, you know, dues that you have. But what if you are not registered? And I'm sure Bukalapak and all these things are registered. What if trade is being made every minute? I'm buying something from Amazon. Amazon is sending st straight to my door. I'm getting the benefit of it. Amazon is getting the benefit of my business. And the government is sitting and watching this thing is flying through mm -hmm. the cloud, right? Now, that kind of trade is increasing significantly. So coming back to that, your question, which model, right? For tax collection, I would suggest to have a vendor collection model. A vendor collection, vendor collection model. model. A vendor collection model is when you're buying something online. Let's say I like a blouse, okay? I click buy, and then it will take me to a separate page, right? Where it will ask for my details, my credit card and all that. And then it will ask me my mode of payment, whether I'm using Visa, MasterCard, debit, or whatever other mode of payment. And then it will say when my invoice comes, the e-invoice comes, it will say, I've just bought a blouse for like, you know, uh, 200,000 plus additional tax 10%, right? And this will be given to the government, right? VAT, it's 10%. And plus there's another tax. Um, there's one VAT and there's one uh, trade tax, basically. Two tax. That's how it is now or? That's, no, that's not how it is now. So once my invoice comes, your final payment is 225000 When the transaction is approved, that platform, right, is connected to the, or should be connected, I'm not saying is because I don't know if it is, that system is happening today, but that platform should be connected to the uh, Excise and Tax Department under the Ministry of Finance. And then in his computer, there should be a thing like, okay, additional tax from this sale, right, coming in. And then what happens at the end of the year when the uh, companies submit their tax report and then finally pays the government, you have all the data in your computer system. Like, okay, this company is an online company. They made this much sales and this is how much they owe the government. That is applicable. The vendor collection model is applicable only if you are registered in Indonesia. I was just going to ask you, so this is only for right. vendors registered here? Right, but for companies who are not registered here, and how do you trace what transactions are taking place, which I believe is 50-50 between in domestic and international, then you need to have a data protection. 
and this is where your this regulation comes in place. Yeah, regulation eighty two two thousand twelve. Right. Yeah. This is where you need to revise it because then you need to see. Okay, government would have a visibility of the transaction. Government should not have a visibility of who's buying it because that is data privacy. So you need to understand the the division between. Uh, transparency, uh, you know, data protection, right? Government needs to know this company or this this individual who is in Indonesia with this much katepe or this katepe is actually bought something abroad, and that's it. Doesn't need to know who buys it, which vendor, and all that thing. Needs to know how much is the amount and what is inside. That's it, and the airway bill number. Most companies, the problem here is most companies are reluctant to give that information because in the airway bill number, you have the address and the name of the person purchasing it. Now, if the company give this number, they will be bre breaching the data protection privacy. So it's not that they don't want to, but they're afraid like, you know, now that I will be sued by my customer. Why did I release their name without their permission? So now the problem, the solution to that is the government will make it mandatory in all the airway bill numbers, okay? All the logistic companies, when they print the airway bill, you put a note under it that your data, uh, please be aware that your data will be shared for tax purposes only, not for any other purposes. This remains difficult for the Indonesian government to implement. It is a tricky one. Australia, I think, is the Australia and Singapore already have e-commerce taxation. It was relatively easy for them to do this because um, they wanted to tap the domestic market first, and then they say we will figure out what to do with the international. But at least let us have a legal. Uh, ground to start taxing the domestic transaction. So they did that and they did the, I think, the vendor collection model. Mm -hmm. So that's the vendor collection model, something that, that Indonesia should be looking at. As uh, President Jokowi of Indonesia and uh, Prime Minister Morrison announced a couple of weeks ago, the trade agreement between our two countries, the IA JEPA, is essentially done. So all the negotiations have been completed and uh, the target is for our two trade ministers to sign it by the end of the year. That was head of the Indonesian Investment Board, Tom Lembong. I'd like, if we may, maybe shift to the recent um, Indonesia-Australia free trade negotiations. Indonesia and Australia are preparing to sign a new free trade deal. Uh, the deal is said to secure certainty for Australian farmers to export beef, milk, and other agricultural products, as well as partnerships and security, including cybersecurity. Indonesia, in return, would have tariffs removed on goods, including uh, textiles and garments. And, and garments. Um, the final negotiations come at a time when Australia has announced that it intends to follow America's decision to move their embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem something that has been viewed very negatively by some in the Indonesian government and in parliament. Uh, this, of course, has been a sensitive issue as Palestinians see East Jerusalem as the capital of a future independent state. 
uh, for background, East Jerusalem became under Israeli control as a result of the Six-Day War in 1967. The Indonesian foreign minister, Retno Marsudi, called the embassy announcement a really big blow that would slap Indonesia's face on the Palestine issue. Uh, one, because of the sensi sensitivities, and secondly, because of Australia failed to give Indonesia a heads up uh, with this announcement, even though they have been engaged in intense uh, trade discussions. This announcement by Australia could put the trade deal in jeopardy. Uh, some observers believe that the Indonesian parliament could slow the deal even if it is signed next week on uh, November 14th uh, due to concerns with the embassy move and Indonesia's support for Palestine. How do you see the Indonesia-Australia free trade deal? Is it good for Indonesia? And second, uh, if you were in parliament, uh, where would you stand on this agreement? Any free trade agreement should serve two purposes. One is to expedite the current trade. The other one is to open up new markets. Now, the first one, when, you, when I say expedite the current trade, is like without a free trade agreement, I'm not saying people will not be trading with another country. Everybody is trading with another country, even in the absence of a free trade agreement. But what the free trade agreement does, it actually makes it more strategized. It gives the benefits and it puts it in a platform where things are more visible and transparent. So government can have access on what are the trade gaps, who is doing business, which country and all that is easier to trace, right? And businesses finds it uh, beneficial for them to be a part of agreements because then they get to enjoy the tariff reduction or they get to enjoy other non-tariff non barriers that the two countries agree. So I want to I put that fact first because, you know, people are, I often get questions on why are countries doing agreements? Why are government doing this and that negotiation and agreements? And I explain to them, this is important because remember the future is straight. So if you don't uh, contingently be on the lookout of new markets, then what are you going to trade, right? So that's that's the ground. Relationship between Indonesia and Australia, uh, you know, they've had a good uh, long-term relationship. And uh, I think with regards to tourism, it has been quite nice as well since the last 20, 30 years. The trade has improved recently with the cheap airline tickets that we are enjoying since the last 10 years, maybe, we see this. And trade has also improved because people are able to go and see and bring back and export goods. I know a lot of Australians are actually importing wood from Indonesia, furnitures and artworks and all that things. You know. But there are value crashes. And we need, this is where politics comes in. And this is where I call it uh, maturity. You need a certain level of maturity. Every country comes with their own set of values, with their own set of doing things. Australia, for instance, I remember a couple of years ago, are very big and high on animal rights. And they protect their environment, they treat their animal well and all that thing. So when the video leaked out on how the cows are being treated here, you know, Australia exports live cows, right? And once they land in Indonesia, it's like they land in hell. Like, you know, they've been tortured, you know, they've been gulped with water and whatnot. Very inhuman. Then Australia stopped and said, no, you guys are cruel. And, you know, despite all this thing. Then for, I think for six months, and then Indonesia say, yeah, we can live without Australian beef, no, not an issue and all that thing. 
I was a part of that negotiation. And then after a while, we realized, or Indonesia realized, uh, although I don't quite agree on animal eating, but anyway, Indonesia realized that they couldn't have enough supply. Then after a renegotiation, they finally, Australia finally agreed, we will export our meat to you, but we will do it in a meat format package. It will not be live anymore. So no live, right? not live, live cattle. Because you guys are cruel. I mean, and that was that was the, you know, it, this is not human. I, I I don't know where are the human beings. I mean, it was it went to that level the debate. I'm sharing this story just to give you an example of a value. Now, when it comes to Jerusalem and Palestine and the long-standing historical positioning that we have, this that dates back even before Christ, I think this story started. This is more political than anything else. And I think when it comes to a political thing, it supersedes every other negotiation and every other aspects. Because you know, if the political stability is not there, you can't talk about trade, you can't talk about agreements. I am not in a position to comment on Jerusalem and Israel. I think it's highly flammable too. Uh, you know, but what I would say here is your question is it could halt the negotiation. I do agree to a certain extent this could halt, but it will not be a significant impact because again, a trade agreement is a trade agreement. There will be some kind of a compromise which the two countries needs to get uh, into. And what are those? I'm not quite sure because I think uh, you know they are still in the process of of uh, negotiating the political situation. Yeah. I think what we want to do is we want to, if, if I may advise, to take the battle on a two separate field, take the Palestine-Jerusalem issue on a more political battle and leave the trade alone. Because these are two, two different things we are looking at. It's a long debate and, and you don't know where is the head or the tail of this, right? So it takes a lot of time. And why should trade suffer in between that? So that is my take to that. Okay, very interesting. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I think we'll have to end there. But also um, for those in Kuala Lumpur, Ms. Shanti will be speaking at the ASEAN India Business Summit on November 27th as the president of ASEAN International Advocacy, along with uh, several other prominent speakers. Uh, you can go to ASEAN-India.org to learn more about this event and also to book a seat. Mishanti Shamdasani, a candidate for Indonesia's lower house representing Jakarta and the Nasdem party. Thank you for taking the time from your busy campaign schedule to be with us today and good luck with the race. Thank you. I'm Sean Corrigan and this is Indonesia In-Depth. The Indonesia In-Depth podcast is produced by the team at Lexico Indonesia, a political risk advisory located in the heart of Jakarta. You can find Lexico Indonesia at lexicoindonesia.com. What, what, is, what is happening in the world? Is that we are heading to an infinity war? Winter is coming.